Very good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, the, uh, the real reason why we're doing this extended 7 o'clock platform uh, is because it's King Lear's night off. But <laughs> there is another um, more, uh, more, more important reason, uh, which I have to skate over. Uh, ten years ago, uh, yeah, probably ten years ago today, um, we were rehearsing the History Boys, first time, uh, and uh, the cast of the History Boys rumbled that it was Alan Bennett's 70th birthday, and there was a cake, and they sang, and a big deal was made, and the playwright was grumpy for about 24 hours. <laughs> Ten years later, I'm going to skate over what that means. <laughs> uh, we're not... We're not going to mention or acknowledge it beyond knowing that uh, what happens 10 years after a 70th birthday uh, uh -huh. will be happening in a couple of days' time. Uh -huh. And for that reason, it seems like a, a very good time uh, to look back a little and maybe even look forward to uh, on uh, Alan Bennett's career as a playwright. And very luckily, uh, we can pick up where we left off, uh, I think probably about six, nine months ago, when we were, maybe a year ago, when we were in the Littleton together and talked about the first half of his career. Uh, by the time our platform last year finished, we'd more or less got up to the madness of George III, which was uh, the second play that Alan and I worked on together here at the National. Uh, we had done The Wind in the Willows together. Uh, we talked about The Wind in the Willows. Uh, we won't talk about it again. Uh, we will pick up on the day that you, Alan, delivered me The Madness of George III for the first time. And let me plunge straight in with that play mm. uh, and ask you how, how you got interested in that subject. Well, when I was at Oxford, I, uh, I did history as, um, uh, and, um, and uh, what, uh, uh, the degree course in Oxford means that you, you do the whole of English history, so you, you do the 18th century included. Uh, and uh, I knew about the, um, what's called the Regency Crisis, which is when George III, for the first time, became uh, deranged uh, at a time when the Prince Regent, uh, or the Prince of Wales, um, was uh, allied with the opposition. So it was a health crisis and it was also a political crisis because if the king uh, did lose his mind, it would mean that um, the Prince of Wales would act as regent and the opposition would come in. So I knew all about that. Uh, and I also knew, I think, that the king made a very quick recovery. Uh, and so that it was, uh, well, it was a plot, and I'm not very good at plot. And, and so uh, it was a, um, a ready-made plot. And, uh, um, and I think um, I must have had it on the stocks uh, for a, quite a time. I think I must have had it half written when we were doing Wind in the Willows. Um, and then I 
because I enjoyed the way we worked on Wind in the Willows, I thought maybe uh, we could work in the same way on George III, which, which we did. Yeah. Uh, is there something about... Uh, is there something about madness, and not just madness, uh, the, the what seems to me to be a recurrent theme, or at least a recurrent character in your work, uh, people who have tumbled over the edge, people who have uh, lost what they once had. I'm thinking not just of George III, but of um, Auden, uh, derelict at the end of his life, of Miss Shepherd, obviously, mm. the lady in the van, even, do you know, Toad ejected from Toad <laughs> Hall. Um, it, is, is there something about that predicament that... that uh, well, it, I think it... it, it um it's ready-made drama, and in the sense that if they are uh, slightly crazy um, and extreme, uh, then they're much easier to write about than than you know people who are balanced and uh, who are the nuances of whose behaviour is much much harder to catch. Uh, so that uh, I don't think of myself as being a particularly um, dramatic writer. So that if if um, somebody uh, has dramatic changes of behaviour, as, as George III did, uh, it's a great help to me as a dramatist, because it makes me do things I wouldn't uh, probably normally do. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Mm. Is there also something about the difference between being and seeming that, uh, that appeals to you? When the king is restored to health, when he is finally confident of his own sanity again, um, I think the line is, um, I've always been myself, but I've remembered how to seem. Yeah. And is, it, it, is that necessity that I think, you know, everybody will recognise of seeming to be someone who the rest of the world will approve of, something that, yes, that you yeah. come back to? Yeah, I, well, I think, and that's particularly so with, with um, royalty. Mm. I mean, that uh, royalty is, half of it is about seeming. Uh, and uh, and if royalty uh, isn't or wasn't prepared to seem, then uh, they seem to me they're in trouble. They would probably be in trouble now. If the, if uh, I mean I've, I wrote um, in remember, 2006 a story about the Queen called uh, the Uncommon Reader, where the Queen um, becomes an avid reader uh, and. Um, uh, and the, uh, stops bothering about seeming, as it were, stops uh, bothering about uh, what anybody thinks about and just uh, gives herself entirely over to books. And of course, uh, uh, the government goes to pot as a result. Um, <laughs> but um, I think, so I think uh, uh, seeming is, is, is a great, is part of monarchy. Um, but it also, uh, it's part of sanity as well. I mean, that uh, um, I perhaps know a bit more about this in the sense that my mother suffered from uh, depressions very much in the second half of her life. And, uh, and she, as it were, stopped bothering to seem. She, she was just encased in gloom all the time. Um, and, and maybe that uh, helped, well, helped me, I don't know, but uh, maybe it may, made me 
predisposed to writing about it. I don't know. Um. There's something else in George III, which, uh, looking back over over your work, as I have over the last few weeks, and on some and on a lot of the television plays as well, which I noticed, which is that you are drawn quite often. Um, to stable marriages, particularly stable long-term marriages, the king and queen. It's a marvelous television play of yours the, uh, called Sunset Across the Bay, um, the way you've written about your parents' marriage, um, which I think you find um, a lot of dramatic mileage in the way those marriages can be so easily and suddenly undermined by, by uh, a health crisis, mm -hmm. um, by uh, boredom by death uh, mm. is that is that something you recognise and is that a lot to do with your parents' marriage? Well, uh, the only marriage I have any experience of uh, uh, as a child, obviously, is my parents, and my parents were very happily married to the extent that I didn't uh, understand any anybody who wasn't happily married. I assumed all marriages were were like my mum and dad, um, and um, and they were they were. Um, miserable if they were apart for you know a day or two. I mean, even we, we during uh, the beginning of the war, um, Dad took us out on the day on the third of September, nineteen thirty-nine, and left us at a farm in the Dales, uh, and went back to Leeds as he had to to go to work, um, and. Uh, Leeds was uh, we didn't they didn't really know it then, but Leeds was not. Uh, uh, a target for uh, for uh, the Germans because uh, uh, all they made was uh, they grew rhubarb and, and made ready-made suit <laughs> and uh, and I would say well the, the war aim to the German high command were very quixotic but a line had to be drawn somewhere <laughs> um, but uh, my mother was in paroxysms of tears uh, and I'd never seen her in tears before uh, as a child uh, and this was just a because she was being parted from my father for no more than five days. Uh, God knows what would have happened if it had, had to go in the army. But anyway, um, no, I, I, I assumed all marriages were, were happy. Uh, uh, and uh, the Sunset Across the Bay was, is about a couple who, uh, having had a happy life in Leeds, but have always longed to retire to Morecambe, eventually do get their heart's desire and do move to Morecambe. Uh, and then, as often happens, uh, it proves not to be as what they'd imagined it would be. And, uh, and he dies of a heart attack and she's left uh, marooned at Morecambe, for, presumably for the rest of her life. Um, that seemed to me a, a real possibility with, with my mum and dad, in the sense that my father, uh, before we made the, just before we made the film, had a heart attack and died, so it became what I sometimes feel a lot of the stuff I write become uh, slightly um, they slightly predict the future they slightly uh, you somehow sense something that's going to happen and you write about it and it happens and this may sound uh, superstitious but uh, it happens too often really for, for it to be just superstition somehow you you do uh, voice something that, that uh, you're frightened of, really. Did George III in any way, did, did you, do you think that was in any way predictive of your own health crisis and your own restoration to health? 
No, not thought of that. Um, uh, because you, because I think you know, you have written. I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm not intruding here. Uh, you have, you have written that um, that that um, y your cancer mm. was a was a kind of um, freeing up, a kind of uh, a kind of um, uh, opportunity to um, to take some of the veils of seeming away from yourself and. To write more freely. Yes, I, I hadn't. Uh, I'd not thought of it in connection with George the Third, but uh, uh, it, uh, George the Third was 1991, and, and I was diagnosed in 1997. Um, but uh, it, it was a kind. Uh, in a way, it was a kind of release, and in a sense, with George the Third, his illness was a kind of release. I mean, a terrible release for him. Um, uh, and and yet um, some of the uh, that's why he was it's so um, engrossing really to, to see him throw over the traces. I mean normally um, the a madman on stage uh, has a very limited life. It seems to me you have to be um, you have to be quite careful not to. Uh, assume that uh, madness is interesting in itself. If somebody isn't making sense, the audience, I think, withdraws its attention from that character. Is that, does that make sense? Yes, uh, absolutely. Because uh, uh, they, they, they know that nothing that's being said is going to be, uh, is entirely true. Um, uh, but uh, George, is, uh, I, uh, I, I was struck by this one because I, I saw it just by accident, the, or half of it, the other night when it was on television, uh, and, and, and thought, uh, although it was terrible, it, Nigel as George III seemed to be having a wonderful time, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and was joking and, and was uh, uh, funny and, uh, and, and mercurial, so that uh, he changed his, his face, uh, uh, so many expressions chased themselves across his face. It was wonderful. Yeah. I, 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 the thing that always struck me, but I know it's diverging slightly, but um, how you, uh, th it was your first film, uh, and how you uh, knew what you knew, or how you, you knew what to do the, on the first day, I don't know. I, I, I didn't. I didn't. No, I, I didn't. <laughs> I had no idea. But uh, it didn't stop you, that's the thing. Uh, it it well would have stopped me. On the first day, I was literally incapable of shouting action. Well. So I got, the, I got the first assistant director <laughs> to shout action for me. I soon got used to it. Uh -huh. um, uh, uh, but it, it actually, the sad truth is that I didn't really know what I was doing, and it is by far the best film I've made. So <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> um, but n actually, Nigel is uh, Nigel's performance. It's worth dwelling on for a second. Uh, the play is full of the most wonderfully witty and deft political scenes, as a as a portrait of how a political establishment n manoeuvres itself around a crisis, uses a crisis as an opportunity to uh, to advance its own interests or advance its competing interests. It's absolutely great. But the moment Nigel got hold of the part, mm. I think we all realised that that was going to be background detail. <laughs> that that yeah. the part was about a man who, who, um, who got ill and had to grapple with his mm. own sense of, uh, of um, losing it. Mm. And uh, it, you have repeatedly responded to, written for, 
uh, great actors, written wonderful red meat parts for great actors. Um, and as soon as they have started to respond to the part, you've responded to them. Um, that's happened over and over in my experience mm. with you, but with Nigel particularly, as, as, mm. as, soon as, he, as soon as we realized what he was doing with the part, you just started writing mm. new stuff for him. No, well, that is true. There, there, is a, there is a, from the playwright's point of view, there is a kind of uh, obverse of that, which is um, uh, critics will tend to say, oh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good part, and Nigel is wonderful and so on. Um, but uh, the play, uh, you know, I'm not sure about the play. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and it's as if uh, the character, they somehow assume that the character has written his own lines uh, <laughs> and, uh, and that you haven't written the play at all. But, uh, yeah. you know, that's worth, it's worth uh, putting up with that for yeah. the success it had and for the, for the pleasure as well, because it was, it was a, r a real joy to work on. Yeah, mm. I will. I may have told this story before on this stage, but it is one of my absolute favourites. So forgive me if I say uh -huh. it, tell it again of an occasion when Nigel did adapt the script. Um, his first scene with the Prime Minister, Mr. Pitt, cold, Mr. Pitt, cold, chilly, mm. monosyllabic as he was, and the King um, constantly trying to prod him to get something out of him. And the scene, there's two scenes in the play. I think. We are asked to believe that all the king's audiences with Mr. Pitt follow the same lines, same formula. Good evening, Mr. Pitt. Good evening, your majesty. Married yet, Mr. Pitt? No, your majesty. <laughs> A man should marry Mr. Pitt. And then uh, the king would be off on his, um, on, 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 on his pee into domestic happiness. Um, Julian Wadham played Mr. Pitt. And one night he was on autopilot for some reason or another. <laughs> yeah, uh, good evening, Mr. Pitt. Good evening, Your Majesty. Married yet, Mr. Pitt? Yes, Your Majesty. <laughs> <laughs> Pause. <laughs> Who to, Mr. Pitt? At <laughs> <laughs> uh, which Julian came off autopilot auto and said, I don't know why. Um, the Duchess of Pembrokeshire's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's he had then, social then aspirations. And Nigel yeah. said, yeah. What's she like, <laughs> Mr. Pitt? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That really happened. Uh. <laughs> no, sorry, you were saying. I no, no, that's <laughs> right. I mean, it was just fortunate it was Julian because Julian had a, a, a rich and vigorous social life, yes. didn't he? So he, <laughs> to begin with, he was perfectly happy to be, you know, describe his, uh, his wife to be or his wife. Uh, but then Nigel <laughs> went on and yes. on. And, and <laughs> I can't re quite remember how Julian got out of it, but he did. And, and he, he, was, he, never, he never was on autopilot again, that's, <laughs> that's for sure. But, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I, Nigel's uh, performance was, uh, I think, a constant astonishment. The other thing I remember with Nigel, which was such a lesson to me and to all actors, there were repeatedly scenes, repeatedly moments which were just astonishing, astonishingly funny or astonishingly moving. Mm. And he would systematically, through the long run, pick one or two of these moments and completely flatten them out, do nothing with them. And I said to him, why, that's such a great moment, mm. why are you doing that? And he said, if I don't do that, I forget why it was good in the first place. Mm. So every now and then, 
I'm going to sacrifice everything in this play, just once, just once or twice, so that I can remind myself why I was doing what I was doing in the first place. And in that, in, in, in that, and you, if you saw the show, would know, know no difference because uh, he would only be he would only throw away one or two things in this marvelously rich show, but in that way he kept everything alive. It was amazing. Mm. It was absolutely mm. amazing. So, uh, George III, moving on from George III, mm -hmm. um, there was a gap between uh, George III, which I guess you wrote in 91, yeah. and we stuck with George III right through to 94 when we made the movie, um, you didn't, in fact, write another play until the end of the decade, until 1999, mm. when you wrote The Lady in the Van. Mm. But that isn't to say that you were not productive. Th that decade, the 90s, was when I think you wrote most, if not all, of The Talking Heads, yeah. Yeah. which were, uh, I think, remain to this day a kind of astonishing, uh, an, an astonishing um, and unique step maybe not forward, but to the side of television convention, incredibly naked and honest. I wondered whether you saw them as a kind of milestone in your work, uh, 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 an opportunity to, to start um, revealing that bit more that you have said you started to reveal uh, when you thought your days might be numbered, although mostly they weren't. I wonder if you see them in that way. Um, I don't remember that. I, 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 I remember feeling um, liberated slightly by it, but once I'd discovered how to do them, uh, um, but the, having said that, that doesn't mean I could, I could do them now. I can't. I wish I could. But having discovered how they worked, which is that uh, people assume that their their stream of consciousness, a character unburdening the, uh, themselves and telling uh, the audience uh, what they feel inside, and they aren't about that at all. They're, they're, there's more action in Talking Heads than uh, than obviously in any of the plays, um, but the action takes place off stage uh, and off screen. Uh, in in the bits that um, the audience never sees, so that uh, you'll come back after after there's, there's sh there are short breaks, and after each break, something crucial has happened uh, in in the in that gap, and um, and the next section is to do with remembering what's happened and carrying you that bit further forward, uh, and so uh, I found this uh, once I discovered that was how they worked. Uh, I found this uh, uh, really uh, exhilarating to to the the exhilarating to found them very exhilarating to write. Um, but as I say, it hasn't made it any easier. Uh, they were like poems; they somehow came to me uh, not intact, but 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 much more ready-made than anything else I'd ever done. Um, most of them were were written um, in. Uh, about northern characters, so the language was, uh, I, I found that very um, easy to do. Um, but um, I, uh, the, the one that is uh, quite revealing a, a, about myself would be the first one, which was uh, a chip in the sugar about a man living with his mother uh, who uh, is 
and then the mother picks up with an old flame and it's quite funny but it also reveals that the 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 man has uh, the son has had um, uh, mental problems and uh, and that's woven into the plot um, and that seemed to me to relate quite closely but either to me or to my mother or certainly to the, the situation in our family um, but uh, others were just uh, I mean the one that Maggie Smith did um, uh, Bed Among the Lentils that simply came out of uh, wondering uh, when I was quite young I think because when I was I was quite re religious when I was young uh, and uh, and I remember in being in church and seeing the vicar's wife and wondering, uh, since I was fairly uncertain myself on the point, what, what, what if she didn't believe in God? How did this affect her and the vicar? Uh, and, uh, and the whole thing is built around that because that's, that's how it starts off with her disaffected from her husband. Um, and then it occurred to me uh, as I was right, I, very, very rarely, I think, except in the Talking Heads, ha have characters um, insisted on things happening to them in the way that they're supposed to do, if you're a proper writer or a proper novelist, I, which I never quite consider myself to be. But um, she, she somehow insisted that uh, she was going to have an affair with the Asian grocer from whom she bought the drink because she was, uh, was revealed to be an alcoholic. Uh, and I had no notion of that when I started off writing it. Uh, and some of the others um, uh, sort of took charge of their own destinies in a way um, I, I'd never experienced before, but which is a great joy, really, when, you, when you're writing. They, they, all of them um, are incredible feats of empathy to me in that you, ha you think yourself, feel yourself into the skin of people who, who you really wouldn't think we, the audience, would want to spend an hour with um, in front of the television. Um, the wife of, um, of, the, of the Ripper, of a, no, of a, no. of a, of a serial violent no. murderer, no. Uh, a, a paedophile. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, um, no. the kind of paedophile who would uh, cause revulsion yeah. um, if you were actually faced yeah. with him. Was, who, who, was that David Bambo did that? Was that? No, that no, was uh, David Haig. David Haig. And the reason why it was David Haig, yeah, I, no, mean, no, no, I meant because he's a wonderful actor, but, but uh, he had also just been in a, a comedy series and was much liked in it and uh, uh, as a sort of mad police, concert, police uh, uh, inspector uh, and, uh, and was much liked and and it had to be somebody like that because uh, the audience hadn't to suspect him, as yeah. it were, right at uh, the start. And Julie Walters um, was the Ripper's wife, who, yes. who you would, who, again, who yeah. pulled you right in, didn't she? Yes, no, that's right. And Patricia that's Routledge right. writing abysmal poison pen <laughs> letters. Yeah. Um, uh. And uh, um, uh, Maggie Smith do, mm. as, the, as the alcoholic vicar's mm. wife. You feel very... Um, comfortable, it seems to me, um, not so much asking for an audience's sympathy for for people who are right out on the margins, but uh, imagining how people get out onto the margins and uh, allowing us to see them from their own point of view. Um, it, mm, which I, is can't, I can't answer that really. I mean, I, I hope it's true, 
but uh, uh, I can't say yes that I do that. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe I do. I, I don't know. But yeah. the thing, the one that that seems far, far away from me and yet is to do with me is uh, the 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 one, the second one that Thora Heard did, mm. which is um, uh, um, waiting for the telegram, where she's an old lady uh, and uh, she's. She's in an old people's home, she's had a stroke, she has difficulty with words uh, and um, she's looked after by uh, a, a young male nurse who you gradually realise is HIV positive. Um, and uh, his presence uh, in her life makes her look back to uh, when she was a girl and um, she on the, uh, uh, during the first war, and uh, her fiance was going off to to the trenches, and um, his uh, he, her family had tactfully withdrawn for the night, and and she uh, and he had come round uh, with the obvious intention of stopping the night, and uh, and she loses her nerve and uh, doesn't let it happen. Uh, and uh, we saw this w w uh, a few weeks ago, the scene, and it, uh, though I say it myself, it is an unbearable scene. Uh, and um, it, uh, I don't know, I, I was just pleased, I was just proud to have written it really, but she, but at the same time, she was me, I mean, in the sense that, and I think not merely me, but, but so many people watching who would see themselves see all the opportunities that they'd missed and the things that they wished they'd done and the wish they'd had the courage to do, uh, the, the people they turned down or, or not dared to sleep with or whatever. Uh, and uh, it's such a common experience and, and presented in, in, in extreme terms with her. But uh, it's, uh, I think that's why it, it touched, apart from Thora's wonderful performance, I think that was why it was so touching. Mm. I think that's something you come back to over and again, though, mm. uh, missed opportunities. Mm. I think it's one of the reasons, yeah, I'm sure, it is universal, a universal experience. Uh, the sense that uh, the best thing that might have happened uh, didn't happen because we ourselves stopped mm. it from happening. Who doesn't feel that? Mm. Who doesn't regret missed opportunities? It does come back over and over. Um, you know, maybe even most vividly in The Lady in the Van, where mm. she could have been um, a professional concert pianist. Mm. You, in fact, you found that out as, um, after Miss Shepherd died, that, that that was her story. Mm. Uh, the end of the History Boys, all eight of them, who mm. are so vital all the way mm. through the play, um, they sit and they tell you what their lives turned out to be. And, mm. you know, s some of them are happy enough, but none of them seem to have grabbed no. their opportunities, mm. not properly. Mm. And I think that is, that is mm. one of the reasons why audiences um, respond so strongly to, mm. to your work. Um, well, that's not a question, well. really. That's just me saying... <laughs> <laughs> that's just well, no. me saying um, one of the reasons yeah. why I respond yeah. to it so strongly. It, well, I mean, uh, that, that scene in the History Boys where where they each put up their hand, and uh, uh, it's, uh, I, I, it, it is what I wrote, but it's also the way you did it. Uh, it's, uh, I couldn't see how it would, how we, we could be staged. Uh, 
And, uh, and there's a wonderful bit with Sam Barnett as the, the last one to be mentioned. Um, and uh, Miss, Mrs. Lintot says, there is though one boy who remembers everything he was ever taught uh, and, uh, and remembers everything that Hector taught him and everything that Hector said. Uh, he lives alone and, uh, on a in, in a cottage on the outskirts of Leeds. Uh, and, and there's a tiny pause, which Sam is always very good at, and then he puts his hand up. And I, that, I just found that wonderful, mm. really. Yeah. We'll come back to the history mm. boys in a minute, because uh, following Talking Heads, uh, the next play you wrote was uh, The Lady in the Van, which mm -hmm. we didn't do here at the National. It's the one play we didn't do at the National. Mm -hmm. We did uh, In the West End with Maggie Smith. I thought the best way to just remind us of The Lady in the Van was if I asked you to read from your memoir, not from the play, mm -hmm. but from your memoir on which, um, on which you based the play. Just um, a short extract. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. it's always popular yeah. when Alan reads. So, um, She'd, uh, she, uh, the, she'd suggested, uh, she'd, she soon got wind of the fact that I was in show business, uh, did Miss Shepherd, uh, who had who lived in a van in the street and then uh, through circumstances at which the book is explained, she, I told her to bring the van into the drive thinking it would be for three months uh, and it turned out to be for 15 years. <laughs> uh, but anyway, she, she, she Kate used to come to me with odd projects for uh, showbiz things that she thought of. And uh, she thought of an, an idea of a woman, the woman behind the curtain, it was called, um, uh, in which uh, it was a kind of agony aunt, I suppose it was. The woman behind the curtain remained a favourite project of hers. And in 1976, she wrote to Eamon, uh, uh, I think it was Eamon, I think she spelt it, Andrews, uh, now that this is your life is ended, having cost too much, etc., I might be able to do a bit as the lady behind the curtain. All you need do is put a curtain up to hide me, but permit words of sense to come forth in answer to some questions. Sense is needed. Hygiene was needed too. <laughs> but possibly in an effort to persuade me about being behind the curtain, she brought the subject up herself. I'm by nature a very clean person. I have a testimonial for a clean room awarded me some years ago, and my aunt, herself spotless, said I was the cleanest of my mother's children, particularly in the unseen places. <laughs> I never fathomed her toilet arrangements. She only once asked me to buy her toilet rolls. I used them to wipe my face. But whatever happened in that department, I took to be part of some complicated arrangement involving the plastic bags she used to hurl from the van every morning. <laughs> when she could still manage stairs, she did very occasionally use my loo, but I didn't encourage it. It was here, on the threshold of the toilet, that my charity stopped short. <laughs> Once, when I was having some building work done, and was, I suppose, conscious of what the workmen were thinking, I very boldly said there was a smell of urine. Well, what can you expect when they're raining bricks down on me all day? And then I think there's a mouse, so that would make a cheesy smell, possibly. <laughs> Miss Shepherd's daily emergence from the van was highly dramatic. Suddenly, and without warning, the rear door would be flung open to reveal the tattered draperies that masked the terrible interior. 
There was a pause, then through the veils would be hurled several bulging plastic sacks. Another pause, before slowly and with great caution, one sturdy, slippered leg came feeling for the floor before the other followed, and one had the first sight of the day's wardrobe. Hats were always a feature. A black railwayman's hat with a long neb worn slightly on the skew so that she looked like a drunken signalman <laughs> or a French guardsman of the 1880s. There was her Charlie Brown pictures hat, and in June 1977, an octagonal straw table mat tied on with a chiffon scarf and a bit of cardboard for the peak. She also went in for green eye shades. Her skirts had a telescopic appearance, as they had often been lengthened many times over by the simple expedient of sewing a strip of extra cloth around the hem, though, though with no attempt at matching. One skirt was ma made by sewing several orange dusters together. <laughs> when she fell foul of authority, she put it down to her clothes. Once late at night, the police rang me from Tunbridge Wells. They'd picked her up on the station, thinking her dress was a nighty. She was indignant. Does it look like a nighty? You see lots of people wearing dresses like this. I don't think this style can have got to Tunbridge Wells yet. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned charity, but you're absolutely determined that this was nothing to do with you being kind, aren't you? Um, <laughs> well, it, it, it wasn't, and I, that's, it's, uh, I, oh, I don't know. <laughs> it's too complicated to explain. There's a, I ought to have brought it with me. Uh, there's a, there's a, um, an aphorism of La Rochefoucauld about it, and it just, it just pins me to the board. It's so accurate, saying it, uh, people shouldn't... Uh, claim um, virtue for things when they're when they incapable of the opposite. I don't know it, but it, he's, uh, I've, I've written it down, so I've got it somewhere. Can, oh. we, can, can, we, uh, can we fit that? Do we, do I will reveal um, that we are um, in the process of pitching the movie of The Lady in the Van. Can we put La Rochefoucauld oh, in the movie? Oh, you can, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would go very well, I think. <laughs> it would add class to it. <laughs> Not quite sure how it would go down with the American yeah. backers, but it's uh, yeah. um, uh, about the neighbours, uh, your neighbours. How did they deal with her as opposed to you? Well, they were just glad I'd got her, and they didn't. Really. <laughs> um, they, uh, uh, she, I mean, the the, uh, the street uh, where I lived then is on a slope, and uh, she started off at the top of the slope, used to gradually moved down, let the van go to the next house and so on. And gradually, and then she got to the bottom and, and, and that's where I lived. And, uh, and so she didn't move any further. And so that's how I got to know her, because she was exactly opposite where I used to work in the bay window of, of my house. Um, but uh, I, I used to see that uh, people, the, the market men used to behave very, very badly. And, and, but not merely them. Uh, young guys in sports cars used to stop and bang on the side of the van to try and get her out and just get a laugh out of her and kind of medieval behavior it was and i it began so much to um distract me when i was working i was keeping an eye on her that um it, it interfered with my work so that when 
when it, it happened that I, I said you should bring the van into the drive, I knew that that at least would uh, ease that situation. I wouldn't be watching out for her all the time. But uh, maybe I'm that, that, the wrong type. I don't know. We, we've just had, this sounds absurd, we've just had um, two blackbirds nesting in our garden. Uh, and I find I was w watching out for the blackbirds in the same way as I watched out <laughs> for Miss Shepherd. So, anyway. So, um, after, I'm galloping through now, but uh, we, 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 need to, uh, we need to move forward mm. onto some more plays. Mm. Uh, after The Lady in the Van, uh, which I think is, um, I hope, unfinished business, uh, the mm. next play that uh, you wrote, uh, you gave to me shortly after uh, I started the job here, and uh, that became one of the two or three great successes of the, of the last ten years, mm. The History Boys. Um, which I remember vividly. I had no idea what you'd been writing about. I kind of, uh, I kind of picked up that you were writing a play. Uh, this great mass of brilliant material arrived, um, a lot of which didn't make it into the final draft. There was just too much of it. Uh, uh, can uh, you? No. We don't say. No, I was going to say uh, we both. Uh, a great friend of mine is George Fenton, yeah. the musician. Uh, who's written lots of music for stuff I've done, and he's done all David Attenborough's programmes and so on. But anyway, uh, George, I knew so well, I, I, I used to tell him what I was working on, which I don't normally tell anybody. Uh, and, uh, and I can remember um, telling him the, um, the crucial scene in, in History Boys about when uh, when Dakin, the, the self-serving boy, very good looking, and uh, who uh, makes a pass at the new master. Uh, and I remember telling George the scene and, uh, and the jokes in it, and him saying, oh, that's all right. Uh, and then I, I think he maybe mentioned it to you. And he that did, was he just said, oh, he's written a new play, there's some mm. good jokes in it. And I said, yeah. can you remember any of the jokes? And he said, no. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so that, that was the, but that was the only information I had about it. <laughs> can, you, can you remember what, drove you to write it? What, what, what was it that well, uh, pulled you back to, to school after, after 40 years onwards, what, uh, 30 years previous? Why school again? Well, I, uh, the first play I ever tried to write um, was about my school in Leeds, and that was uh, for a, an impresario long dead called Peter Bridge. And, he, and it was when I was in New York with Beyond the Fringe where we we knew we had, to, we had to be in New York for at least a year in order not to have to pay tax in America and tax in England. So we, we knew we were there, uh, I regard it as a sentence really, uh, of a year. And, um, and I, my homesickness took the form of trying to write about my school. Um, and I finished a draft of this play, which was absolutely terrible, but it was, since it was the first thing I'd ever written, it's not surprising. Um, and even Peter Bridge, who was famous for doing terrible stuff, drew the line. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, I then put it on one side and forgot all about it. And it was only when I started working on the History Boys, I remembered that I'd, I'd tried to do this before. So I'd, in a sense, been trying to do it all my life, uh, but uh, I'd never managed to do it. 
Um, and I remember the, the, the absolute, I, I still feel, uh, you know, that, that was quite near the, quite late on in my writing life. I still had no idea how to write a play, it seemed to me. Uh, when, when I was writing about Hector, I had the notion that Hector and Erwin, uh, uh, you know, the two, really two opposite kind of teachers, were all in one character, were in Hector's character. And it was a great revelation when I thought, oh, these could be two characters, not one. Which uh, any worthwhile dramatist would have recognised straight away, <laughs> you know. But anyway, um, uh, once I'd got the f frame of it right, uh, it, uh, it didn't seem to me difficult to write, partly because uh, I always write in three-minute bursts, really, and the three-minute bursts, you know, covered the scenes in the classrooms, really, yeah. so that was, that was easy to do. Um, and, uh, and then I, um, I, I remember reading, I didn't get the, begin to get the boys right until I reread. Uh, a play, a very good play, a radio play called Unman, Wittering and Zygo by uh, Giles Cooper. Uh, and uh, this gave me the clue to, uh, to the boys taking the piss out of, uh, out of the masters and so on. Uh, and um, I don't know, I, I, it didn't seem like work really, I think. And uh, the, none, I mean, the rehearsals, none of it seemed like work, really. It was just no, a joy to do it. It was the most enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. It was absolutely the most mm. enjoyable of all. And really. the, um, I mean, we, we, I, I, in the gala that, we, that uh, you'd had I, uh, in last... Yeah, November, the 50th in November, show, yeah. yeah. I, I did Hector's a scene of playing Richard Griffith's part. I was absolutely terrified. You were not? Yeah, well, oh, no, I, I thought went, you were going to say terrible. But I <laughs> was terrified. No, no, I wasn't terrified. terrible. You were no, terrified. No, I was terrified. Yeah. But, uh, but I, seeing it, um, one thing that struck me, in, in that, because Sam Barnett was in New York and couldn't uh, take part, his part in the reconstruction was done by Sasha Dawan. Uh, now, Sasha had not played that part before, uh, and uh, he, we, we only had two or three rehearsals, but it's wonderful. He just built it up and it built it up and did it perfectly, absolutely perfectly. And uh, which is not surprising because he'd been on the stage then for 10 years, I suppose. But I, re I remember him coming in to rehearse to, to the auditions uh, as a boy from uh, Manchester uh, and, uh, and really uh, trembling really with, with wanting to do the play and wanting to be in it and, and, and with anxiety that he'd be turned down. And then at the, at the end uh, of the audition, he said, uh, could he read us a poem that he'd written about coming to the audition? And, and he read us this poem. Uh, and, uh, and it was, I think that was what made me think, oh, he'd be, he'd be good to have the nerve to do that really. Uh, but uh, then to see how far he'd come, you know, in the in the ten years since he first went on, and it's true of the, all of them in different ways. Yeah, they've all done well. Yeah, yeah. They've all done well. There was um, there was a kid called Corden who's rather. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what happened well, to he him. He was just as <laughs> self-assured then as he is now. So. <laughs> yeah. um, one of the things I loved about the play, uh, which I think is very characteristic of what you do, is that it was full of stuff that was there for no reason beyond the fact that it was play. Oh. I'm thinking particularly of 
uh, there was an excuse for all these scenes because Hector was so eccentric. But I'm thinking particularly of the scenes from classic Hollywood movies that they acted out. They added nothing on the face of it, but they were part of the texture of it. And I think you love that. I think you mm. love just throwing things in because well, no, the stage uh, is a playground. Uh, but you, you, but you, you underestimate yourself because I'm, I'm very nervous about putting things like that in. Uh, but then you encourage me to do it. So you actually <laughs> uh, encourage me in my bad behavior, really. <laughs> Uh, because I remember, I remember thinking, oh, I can't possibly do this, or, or some other playwright could do this, but I can't. And then I thought, well, go on, have a go. Uh, and, uh, and then you tell me that it's all right to do that. It's a kind, you give me a kind of license to do it, uh, which, um, which I need, I suppose, because I am quite timid, I think, really, in some ways. Mm. No, I've, n- I've, n- I've, never, I've never particularly found you that. I well, anyway. <laughs> Not a... Not as a writer. No, but I would, I would, if you'd said to me, you can't possibly have this, I don't think I would have fought for it. Whereas I can think of playwrights who would just sweep out in high dodgeon if they were told that, you know. <laughs> so anyway. Yeah, I can um. think of one or two. <laughs> <laughs> um, completely serendipitous again, or uh, mm. that's probably the wrong word, but um, uh, apparently superfluous at least, uh, were several scenes in The Habit of Art, which I remember thinking, yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll, why, why don't we do those? The scenes, uh, the scenes at the beginning where the furniture uh, talks, yeah. talks, yeah. talks to itself and to each other. But the, the Habit of Art, I remember you first mentioning to me, we were on our way to New York mm. for the Broadway opening mm. of The History Boys, yeah. and you said, did I think there might be a play in Auden and oh. Britain and an imagined oh. meeting between the two of them about death in Venice. Mm. Uh, what strikes me about that play in retrospect is that uh, I think you did identify um, an important division between writers and maybe between impulses in the same writer. The um, Auden impulse in the play to be completely open, to let everything hang out, uh, to, um, to use the material of his own life honestly as a basis for his verse, and the enormous power that Britain's music and his operas derive from holding back, mm. from concealing. And I wonder how you feel about that these days, Con- concealment uh. or openness, because there is no doubt that through concealment, um, Britain manages, you mm. could say, to reveal even more than Auden does. Yeah, I, uh, well, Britain is... is uh, the, although I don't find him sympathetic at all, uh, he's the one I identified with more than with Auden. Um, partly because uh, when I first started off on the stage, it was in Beyond the Fringe, uh, and, um, uh, and I was with uh, Peter Cook and Jonathan Miller and Dudley Moore, uh, and uh, Peter and, and Jonathan were both uh, verbally very, very um, extravagantly skilled, and, uh, uh, and Peter especially very uh, f- um, fertile uh, and able to write reams and reams material, where I was very costive and slow. Uh, and, um, and this was uh, Britain's experience when he was working with Auden for the first time. Uh, and uh, uh, and I and so I suppose in a way I th- that's why I find him uh, personally sympathetic. Although in in other ways I find his 
I found his, um, the court really that surrounded him, I found that, uh, I found that uh, offen offensive, yes I do. And, uh, uh, and uh, as with any artist, I don't, it seems to me that you, you shouldn't be surrounded by uh, a, a group of admirers like that. Um, I've forgotten what the question was now. No, I was. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I think you said I was uh, talking about. I was talking about um, uh, con concealment in art, restraint mm. in art, yeah. and um, revelation in art. Uh. Do you? What? What? What are your musical? Do you like Britain's music? What are your musical tastes? Yes, but I'm I'm very very uh, uneducated musically. I um, I think my musical education stopped with. Uh, with Walton, probably, uh, and uh, I don't know much. It was, it was my musical education was formed in Leeds, where we had a when I was a boy we had an orchestra called the Yorkshire Symphony Orchestra, which used to give concerts once, maybe twice a week, uh, and we used to be able to go from school for sixpence, which is you know five p ten, and uh, uh, and uh, I used to sit behind the orchestra. And uh, and all I ever, uh, all the music I ever, uh, no, all I know about music I learnt then, and uh, and learnt the repertoire then, uh, and music is bound up completely with memory for me. Uh, I, I've uh, they've asked me to go on Desert Island Disc. I've done it once to go on again, but I, I if I went on again, I would choose exactly the same thing. So. <laughs> There's no point. Uh, and I, think, uh, I think, can I just say, being asked to go on Desert Island Discs again? <laughs> no, but, well... I think you have to say yes, <laughs> don't you? It's, it's like getting the OM. No, but it's, it, would, it would be just... Anyway, I just thought it wouldn't be a good idea, really. And I, and I also feel... Well, you're partly responsible for this. Uh, uh, Michael Barclay asked me to go on um, uh, Private oh, Passions, which is uh, more... Um, uh, very superior desert island discs, but uh, I've always felt when I listen to that, including listening to your one, how much more people know about music than I do. So uh, it, uh, I, I, I haven't gone on that either, really. Well, I, I, and I've tried to persuade you to because the, the genius of Michael Barclay is that he's <laughs> able to draw out of you without he draws out of complete non-musicians. Yeah. Uh, Without them really feeling self-conscious about it at no. all, why they like what they like, no. I think you I think you'll discover a lot. <laughs> if you you would discover a lot about why you like well, what you maybe like. Maybe so. Anyway, he's terrific. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll move on from music <laughs> then. <Yeah. laughs> um, people, which um, which we did most recently, although not most recently. Most recently was the double bill um, untold stories. Uh, Another of your characters who hadn't lived the life they should have li uh, they should have lived. Mm. Another uh, uh, Francis Latour's character um, who let all her opportunities slip. It felt to me actually just the image of those two old ladies sitting in that broken down mm. um, state room mm. uh, said so much about about what you find moving and the kind of brutalization almost of them which happened as their lives were 
according to all conventional standards, turned round and made mm. comfortable. Was I, I always found very, very affecting. Mm. No, I, I, well, no, it was, uh, they did it wonderfully. Mm. I, um, I don't know, I, th I, the, I had the notion that the play started off with an image um, which was of a woman in a very uh, tatty fur coat and gym shoes, uh, which is what uh, Frankie wore in the first scene. Um, and, uh, and so it, it went on from there. Um, and I put all sorts into it, which, uh, <coughs> which again I thought were rather outlandish and probably shouldn't be there, like, like the porn, the, the, the uh, film crew making a porn movie which uh, uses the house as a, <coughs> as a setting. Um, I then found out, uh, well, we then found out as we worked on it, this was, uh, uh, people knew of situations where that had happened. I mean, uh, I can't remember which, uh, it may have been Julian Wadham again, who, uh, who had come across this in <laughs> life. Uh, but, uh, uh, and, uh, and the, the, the National Trust came in for a bit of uh, um, ribbing, really, not, not much stronger than that, because uh, it, um, it, it seemed to me to be going down market a bit, but, um, <laughs> uh, which I still think, but anyway. <laughs> uh, this, this is nothing to do with this. This something happened this morning. Um, uh, there was a, this boy on the other side of the street I live who was from Detroit, who was a budding novelist, but anyway, he stopped me in the street and, um, and he said, uh, he'd, he'd read some stuff about the interview we did in the paper, and, and, um, and he said, well, I hope you have a nice birthday. Uh, however old you are, you want to, uh, you want to think this, um, uh, you should be really pleased because you can still piss people off. <laughs> uh, and, um, I thought, well, that, I, nobody could say anything that pleases me more than that, really. <laughs> and I very much hope uh, that uh, somewhere or other, um, in not too many years, um, I'll be directing Alan Bennett's next play. But meanwhile, uh, thank you very much for coming, and thank you, Alan, for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.